Welcome back. And here we are with the long-awaited second episode. Y'all, it's been a minute and I will spare you the details about transitions and delays to the publication of this episode. But I will say, however, that I did sit on this episode for quite a while simply because the following conversation was so good and yet we didn't seem to get to everything that really should be said. And I think that's likely the case about anything we could say about the Middle East. It'll always feel, I think, that we have not gotten to everything that should be said. And that's what this episode is, is about. Uh, it's about my experiences there. And I'm talking to you today with Jimmy Doyle and Kendall Smith about how the three of us met in the Middle East, other related stories, and uh, specifically how we learn from Syrian refugees and our Muslim neighbors. Okay, so backstory. I met Kendall and Jimmy in 2017 when I decided to book a flight to Amman, Jordan. Now, during that time, the refugee crisis in Syria had reached a particular peak as the Muslim ban went into effect, which sent many refugees who were awaiting placement into different countries and locations back into desperate concern about their livelihoods and futures. Now, I knew very little about where I was going or what I'd be doing when I got there, but I knew where it started for me. And it started for me when two photos surfaced in the news cycle. The first photo was of little Alan Curdy. You may remember him, but he was a, a little five-year-old boy who washed ashore after drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. Alan and his family tried to flee danger and find safety, but they suffered a terrible and tragic end to that story, losing little Alan in the waters. The photo sparked activists all over the world to get involved in the crisis, but I, I hadn't quite made all the connections that I needed until the news and the footage of little Omran Daknish surfaced. Omran, as I remember him, was, was sitting in the back of an ambulance after an alleged Russian strike on his hometown in Aleppo. His face was staring somberly into the camera. He, was, he seemed dazed by the blast that had left debris and rubble in his wiry hair. The, the photo haunted me for weeks and I cried as I imagined what I would feel if he were my son. And in some sense, my Christian tradition was teaching me that he was in fact, in some way, my son, that he was our son, that we belong to each other, we are each other's, and that we don't have to be at fault to be responsible for the needs of our neighbors. So I immediately called out for people to get me into Syria. I wanted there fast. And eventually I connected with a man by the name of Rich Rosendahl, who I learned was taking a ragged band of misfits from various places in the country to the border of Syria. And I was in, I booked my flight, uh, I think in July and arrived in Amman in August of 2017. Well, after meeting up with Rich and his wife, Sherry, I connected with others who were assembling there in Amman to serve and learn from Syrian refugees who were crossing the border in a little town called Mafrak. Among the handful of us who were gathered were Jimmy and Kendall, who had immediately left uh, a deep impression on me. And after nearly two weeks that we spent together in the Middle East, they now remain to me as some of the dearest of friends. I'm grateful to have met them, and I'm really, really happy to introduce them to you today. Jimmy and Kendall have been uh, in and out of the Middle East on multiple occasions and are leading teams to return in the near future, and I hope to be with them. 
The following conversation is about Jimmy and Kendall's connections to and their thoughts about how Christians and people in America can engage and learn more about our Muslim neighbors. Now, I don't know how to introduce you to these two people. To, to Jimmy, uh, he's a special person. Um, I, I know that he would not want me to <laughs> lay on all the accolades and credentials that are fitting him. So I'll just tell you that he's, he's a unique individual and I think that you'll soon see why I greatly respect him. And I love Kendall. I loved having her on this call specifically because the rhetoric in our country and even in the conversation that you're about to hear lands in a particular home for her. Kendall adopted her two sons, Hussein and Murtada, two Saudi Arabian young men who immigrated to America and were lucky enough to find her um, on their difficult way. Though I bet Kendall would likely say that she was a lucky one after all. Well, we pick up the conversation as Jimmy talks about how we all wound up in Jordan together and Kendall shares about meeting her sons. Enjoy. Yeah, I mean, people in other cultures have their own perspectives of Americans too that may or may not be true. You know, mm -hmm. like uh, Kendall's boys told me that, I said, so what did you think about America when you first got here? What were you expecting? And I think their answer at first, I thought they were kidding and they were like, no, we were really serious. Like, I, we thought everyone was going to be driving around in sports cars and big trucks <laughs> and shooting machine guns at each other, right? Yeah. Like, their view of us was based upon the movies that they had seen growing up, American movies. I think they were disappointed. Uh, I think they probably, this, this is really boring, right? So we have these per perceptions of the Middle East or any culture that is not our own, even even cultures that are not our own here in the United States. Yes. Uh, that are probably based upon media and popular notions. And when you go there, you realize, oh, this is, here are the parts that are true about some of those notions that are probably blown up in some ways that are probably exaggerated um, but so they're they're kind of exploring us too this anytime mm -hmm. two cultures are engaging if they're truly engaging they are in the best scenario they're learning new things about each other but they're also learning oh these old things these old views that I had I'm having to either let go or modify so right. yeah. Uh, yeah yeah and giving space for each other to do that Uh, I'm going to start and then I'm going to let Kendall go yes. because I had previously done some trips to Israel-Palestine and I don't know how I connected online with Rich Rosendahl, but uh, I knew that he had been taking these trips to Jordan and also had crossed over from Jordan into Palestine. And so my initial contact on this trip, uh, I had an interest already in what was going on with the Syrian refugees. I had a conversation with Scott Gore about possibly going and I contacted Rich really to get advice on flying into Amman uh, for cheaper airfare, essentially, um, because I was doing a trip to Israel with a friend, and I wanted to know how easy it was and what I needed to know about going from Amman to Palestine and Israel. And when I called him and told him when the dates of my trip were, he said, well, hey, we're, we happen to be doing a trip up in Mafrak, uh around the same time. Why don't you just come and join us? And as soon as he said that, it just, I mean, I was trying to do everything I could to make that happen. Uh, and I knew that it was going to work out with my schedule. Another friend that was going with me, uh, it worked out with his schedules. That was John Holland. So we knew we wanted to tag that part of the trip onto the first part of our trip to the Holy Land. And 
Kendall had already, she had been to the Holy Land too, and she had uh, connections, which, which she's going to talk about with these two boys who are basically her Saudi Arabian sons. And so Kendall had a lot of interest in the region too. And when I shared with her, she was excited about going. Then what happened, Kendall? <laughs> <laughs> well, Jimmy, of course, said, you should go, you should go. <laughs> and so... Um, I didn't have to push her very hard. No, he didn't. He did not at all. Uh, so my, my experiences here in the United States with um, the, the, my two Middle Eastern sons uh, broadened my interest in uh, caring for displaced people, regardless of how they became displaced. And so that's also, you know, was a motivator for me to go to this Jordan trip. Kendall's the type that makes friends wherever she goes <laughs> with whoever she, like instant friends, like instant. So uh, the Middle East just made sense. It, she does that here at home and being able to do that there is uh, with their hospitality. Their hospitality combined with her ability to make friends was a perfect match. So on her first Holy Land trip, uh, I had encouraged her to kind of branch out on that trip if she could, uh, and she did. She went around and she made <laughs> friends with a bunch of people and it made other people on her nervous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there were several people, including my pastor, that was nervous, but um, it was still great. Um, I met Murtada at Walmart. <laughs> um, he was, I had seen him three times. I don't know how much detail you want, but I'd seen him three times in the store looking for something. And so finally, I just asked him if I could help him. And he had very stilted English, um, really very hard to understand, but he told me what he was looking for. And so I started walking with him across the store to where I thought that he needed to go. And of course, started asking him questions, where he was from. And when he told me he's from Saudi Arabia, here to learn English, to try to go to college, I started asking him, you know, if he had friends and where he lived and, you know, any kind of connections he'd made. And he was very forthright and said he was lonely. Um, he came from a big family. He was living in an apartment. He wasn't in a dorm. So I told him I could probably help him get hooked up with an international program at the local college that, you know, matched families with um, international students. And he wanted to basically live with an American family and even asked me then if it could you know, I could do it, and I said no because of I had two teenage daughters, and you know I didn't know him at all, and so, but I did invite him to church and invited him to meet my daughters because she was the same age, and he initially said no, but then he called me. We exchanged first names and numbers, and then he called me to ask me to go to church, and so he went to church with me, and then that just started our friendship. I did call the college at, at, about the international program, and they said that if I he was legitimately here. I made sure that of that. Um, but they said I'd already made contact with him. I might as well, I was willing to continue the friendship. And so that's what we did. There are, we have neighbors around us all the time to people from the United States, but also uh, you don't have to travel around the world to meet refugees and immigrants and people who are from other cultures. They are at Walmart, they're at your dentist, they're at the DMV, they are all over the place. And, uh, you know, really our goal in doing these trips 
is so that we can go and connect with people that we can't connect with here because they can't come here now. But the overall goal is like for us to invite people to go so that their own awareness of the refugees and the, the uh, international neighbors that are around them here locally in the States, uh, you know, it would be a shame for us to travel across the world and not be able to see the people who are here. And the real goal is to transform us to see the people who are here. Uh, and Kendall was already doing that. And in this connection with, with uh, really the two boys, it, it's like a, at this point, it truly is like a mother-son relationship. They are, uh, they are absolutely family. And these two young men are really sweet kids. Uh, it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing to see, for sure. It was beautiful to see her growing because she didn't know anything about Islam. She didn't really know anything about the Middle East. She didn't know any of that before this. All she knew is here was a young man who needed help, and she acted on it. And out of that, Kendall now, you know, at the beginning of this, uh, of our conversation today, you said something about experts. Kendall is an expert in things of the Middle East, and she's going to say that she's not, but the truth is is she knows culture, she knows people, uh, and she may not be a book expert, but... Uh, she's a part of someone's life deeply who's from the Middle East, so it's cool to see. With all that being said, um, Murtada did not know anything about Christianity, and, and he knew very little about the United States, and what he did know was from the media, and of course, it was not good. I knew nothing about Islam and Muslims, and I knew uh, and very little about Saudi Arabia, and what I did know was from the media. And so it was a really level playing ground, or you know, learning ground, I guess you'd say, because we were both very open to learning about each other's um, cultures and countries and religion. And so there wasn't any judgment. Um, and it was just all, you know, just genuine interest to learn about each other in each other's countries. And um, so it was a great experience. It is a great experience still to this day um, because it's now been six years uh, that I've been friends with Murtada. And then I became friends with his roommate, which was Hussein, and um, that just opened up doors. So I have met their families um, either on Facebook uh, in, while they're in Saudi Arabia or on um, not Facebook, FaceTime, excuse me, um, <laughs> or here in the United States, um, especially Hussein has a lot of uncles and aunts and cousins that are here, and I've met them and become friends with them. And so I have just learned so much about them and how much more we are alike than different mm-hmm. and that there's not any need to have fear. And I think these relationships, you know, they have come to um, my home for holidays, for a spring break, for a vacation, for, you know, summer break. I've helped them with basic life skills, um, helped them with prescriptions and how to buy a car. And, you know, I read every single Sunday night with Murtada on, while we FaceTimed so he could pass the English test. And all that time spent together, just, you know, we just became, you know, like family. They started calling me their American mom. And um, I had no idea what that meant until I told Jimmy. And Jimmy said, Kendall, that is a huge honor uh, because they highly regard their mothers. And over time, I have learned about their culture and their uh, family and how much they do honor family. and I feel blessed and honored that they do call me mom. Yeah. yeah. I remember um, 
we were on the bus. You were sharing with me about your boys. You started talking about how you met them. Remember where we were traveling to at the time? Was it Ajloon? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we were, I mean, it was very mountainous. I remember the, the trip was, was beautiful. We, we sat, I think we sat near each other and, uh, and I was asking you about your boys and you were sharing about them. And I remember being struck by, you know, the sense that like what you just described, the, the kind of a typical American um, experience or knowledge of uh, the Middle East, but the atypical response to that. People, um, you know, they have preconceived notions about the Middle East like we've already kind of talked about. And then, and then um, you know, you encounter these and, and you see it through almost kind of two sets of eyes. You have the, you have the, the sense of being an American and seeing, you know, seeing from this perspective, but then also from a, a kind of a motherly set of eyes, you get to see it almost like vicariously through your boys. That makes sense, mm-hmm. and I wonder then, like, what what's their perspective? What's their perspective like of that relationship? Of those, even the, the tensions and the fear that it kind of that exists still today, and it probably seems, I think, higher. You know, the tensions are higher. It's surprising, um, even though they're profiled at the airport, um, mm. and they have been discriminated against at different places. I, you know. Uh, I, I very quickly became very protective of that and inquisitive about, you know, how they were treated, you know, at universities and by other American students or the professors or whatever. But um, they have a far better attitude, I think, than I really expected. Um, so many times whenever they would tell me stories of, of um, being discriminated against or being treated uh, differently, they were, I would get you know, I don't know, upset um, <laughs> and concerned. And they were just like, Mom, don't worry. Don't worry. They don't understand us. They don't know. It's okay. They were far more open and forgiving and gracious about how they were t- are treated here um, than I think I might have. If I were treated the same in their country, uh, you, know, t- you know, discriminated against occasionally or profiled, you know, I don't know that I would be as gracious. So I was really surprised by that. Um, now, that's not to say that they've been treated like that a lot because mm. it's been um, far more infrequent than I really thought mm. that it would be considering what, you know, I think most Americans um, think of Middle Eastern people. But I will have to say that over time, you were talking a little bit about, uh, you mentioned about, um, you know, what people know and how they react. And there has been... Um, several moments, uh, several events that there, that it's been awkward or it's been hard, it's been emotional because people don't understand why I have these friendships with these Middle Eastern boys, and um, they, you were talking about you know listening to my story and thinking about, I guess the, you know the old church of how it'd be about the openness and everything. I thought that too, and I was very naive. Because I thought that everybody that I went to church with and everybody that I was you know, in relationship with believed like me, which was so naive. And I found out very quickly, they don't. <laughs> mm. They don't. And Can you the, say? 
Can you, can you say more about that? I mean, I don't mean to put that in a way of like, you know, upsetting relationships you currently have or, or whatever, but... Can you, can you talk about them by name? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you. Uh, now, a, a couple of instances, like, for example, um, um, someone from our church went to, to, up to my boss, who's uh, a friend of mine and totally supports, you know, my friendships with, you know, Middle Eastern and my, um, you know, traveling, you know, to and from, uh, asked them him what I was doing with those Muslim boys. And thankfully, he said, you know what? She's being a mom to those boys. She's being Jesus. She's doing just fine. And so that was alarming to me because I hadn't even, you know, that they didn't do that face-to-face. They went to someone else. But um, I was really sort of hurt on one hand because I would wish that they would have just come to me and talked to me about it. Mm. Uh, but people won't. You know, so then on the flip side of that, I had an individual that uh, said something on Facebook that it was a friend. I'd known her for years, and she made a comment and, um, about, you know, some Middle Eastern issues. And I asked her if we could meet and talk about it, and she's like, no, she didn't want to. Um, and so I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I also had some family members that um, didn't want them to be at Christmas. Uh, they'd already been at you know, on Christmas uh, one year, and of course they, is open invitation, you know, I wanted them to come every chance they got, and um, so let me preface this to how that even started, is one Thanksgiving I tried to get them to come home, they were in Troy, Alabama at the time, and I tried to get them to come home for Thanksgiving, and they were just like, no, 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 and I tried to offer money, well, of course they would not accept money at all to get them here, and so on Sunday night after Christmas, uh, Murtada called me and he said, I can't do this. And I said, why not? What are you, what's going on? I thought he was talking about school because he was struggling. And he said, I can't be in America on a holiday and at the college when there's nobody here. And he said, I can't do it. It's too lonely. And I said, I told you to come home. <laughs> but um, So that's when they decided, you know, they agreed to come home that first Christmas. Well, then the second Christmas... I had a family member call me and say that, you know, they wanted to have just um, a family mm. Christmas. And I said, well, that's what we're going to have. And they're like, no, I mean just us. And I said, what are you saying? Well, they did not want Murtad and Hussein to attend. And I said, you know what? I said, if they can't come, I'm not coming. Mm. Um, you know what? I said, they're family to me, and I'm not, uh, I'm not going to, you know, not allow that and they had some ideas of you know my family coming and them staying at my house and you know and I was like no that's not going to work and so it got a little emotional a little heated um and I basically <laughs> accused that family family member of you know if they didn't look like us or talk like us or then they that he wasn't going to you know reach out to them like Christians should and uh about an hour or so later, they called back and said everything was fine. <laughs> and the boys came home for Christmas. <laughs> Kendall called their bluff. <laughs> so, but, you know, to, and not to, to add to that, now that the years have gone on and they've still been, still been coming back, I mean, that was, you know, 2014 and 15. And here we are in 2018 or 19, and they've been around and so now my family is like, they feel like 
their view has been opened up and widened um, just through, you know, our relationship. Right, yeah. It's been a good thing. Yeah. But it's been hard. Yeah. Which fear is the unknown, right? I mean, what we're really talking about, there's an anxiety uh, in our society uh, about outsiders because we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Once you have a sense of, of any level of fear uh, that you may have when it, when it becomes so, um, so broad that uh, I guess what makes it broad is the unknown, right? Uh, and once that happens, it's overwhelming. I don't want to have anything to do with people that I don't know because they may be a threat to me or my family. Um, and what Kendall has done is she's entered into the known. So she's trusting because she's seen that this relationship is trustworthy and she's been able to enter into a larger culture, which allows her to let her guard down. And some people might see that as being naive, but the truth is it's based upon her experience with people. It's not a naive trust. Well, and something that's beautiful in this, because I don't want people to get the idea that like Kendall didn't go to Walmart looking to be like an evangelist, you know. She wasn't like looking for her, the next project, you know. Yeah. Um, success or failure. Like her heart was just, she just saw somebody who needed some help. And her relationship with not only her two adopted sons, but anybody that I've seen her meet hasn't been, okay, well, this is, I'm doing my job now to do this thing, to you know, I'm going to try to work this relationship to where I can share Jesus. Uh, she just is caring for people directly. And so once you enter into those kind of relationships, you can't help but learn about the other person's life, which includes their religion, if that's an important part to them. But because it's working both ways, they, they learn from Kendall's experiences, and they learn about her religion and her faith. And there's a real, one of the beautiful things is, is it's a real mutuality. Um, right. And Kendall's not maintaining or not maintaining the relationship depending on how much she's progressing in any of those things in those conversations. It's just friendships. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an important um an important point to to indicate and to note is I think that I think that the other is sniffed out so fast. Uh as yeah. being inauthentic and right. uh agenda driven. Um, and it's not even that I don't think it even works, works as the, you know, I don't even think that it works for those who are doing that to even, to even tell themselves like, okay, I need to care in order to advance my agenda. Right. Like right. even, right. even that is sniffed out and, and at the light, at the, at the heart of it, it just belies the whole purpose of what it means to be neighbors and friends and loving. Right. right. I have. You know, someone said something about you know me being a missionary at one point, and I was just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, but um, Jimmy brought it to my attention that you know just having this relationship with um, these friendships with these um, Muslim boys and their families and their friends um, has made me knowledgeable enough to share it with people that I know that might not ever venture out mm-hmm. and, cr- and get out of their comfort zone to meet yeah. someone like that. And so mm-hmm. he said, 
something to the effect that, you know, maybe my mission was here in the United States with the people I know. Well, I think it's a mix. I mean, if we're going to, you know, if we, if we put that label missionary on it, I would rather turn it the other way. Because what I see Kendall doing is, because of the authenticity of these relationships, she has been able to invite other people into them who had that anxiety and that fear on the Christian side, maybe, or on the American side. Um, you know, someone who wouldn't maybe think about going to the Middle East or uh, wouldn't think, about, maybe people in her family who wouldn't, would never have had an interaction with a Muslim from Saudi Arabia, even though they may brush against them at workplaces and at, at stores and other places. Kindle has been able to invite people uh, to share in that. So hopefully that false fear and that anxiety can be diminished because people kind of get to know each other. And, and she's a bridge that way, I think. Being in a church context and being in like where you're, you know, you're teaching, um, uh, do you find that, that that makes it a little more precarious, you know, having the relationships that you do and having the viewpoint that you do, you know, do you find yourself kind of in a, in a rub there sometimes? Everybody that's, everybody's been really very open about it. I mean, once they realized as time went on, right. the more that the relationship, you know, um, developed and, uh, you know, they are, are very intrigued. They always want to hear about every time they visit or every time I go visit them. Um, they are pranksters and they love to prank me and they love to surprise me. And so they, you know, they love to hear those stories. And it has just made them more real as far as they're just like any other teenage young men. You know, they're just like our own kids. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, nothing to fear. I think there was tension. Though. I mean, you know, um, not like uh, organizational with the church at all. Because I think the staff was really supportive. Um, there are obviously churches around us that are uh, anti-Muslim in Edmond, where we live. There are some churches, but uh, not the church that uh, Kindle's a part of. But there were people that did really express their concern, as you've said to you. And within that congregation, as leaders in the church have gotten more connected, especially with the Palestinian situation, there have been people who have left the church. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's true. So there have there there have been tensions, but the response of the church has been mostly positive. So people who have been caught up in that fear or anger have really either decided to be quiet about it or they've left the congregation um, themselves. Yeah, I've probably had more tension in that church from some of my stuff than probably Kendall has. Yeah, related I, to Palestinian issues. I have but, tried, you know, to. Um, um, broaden the church's um, exposure mm. uh, and was turned down. And so that was uh, disappointing. But um, so I just basically share my story, you know, one-on-one -on -one or in small groups or small um, context. And a lot of times I know Jimmy uh, taught a class and he wanted me to come to the class and I did, but I didn't speak up very much and he kept trying to Kindle, speak up, speak up. And I said, I can't speak up and talk about something because I feel, I feel like if I, they don't know the whole story, they won't believe me or they won't um, you know, trust what was being said. And so, but once you sort of hear the story in the chronological order and the length of time that it's gone on now, then 
I think that validates the truth of what I say, say mm. you know, whenever I do speak about what I've learned from them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, um, I think it's uh, troubling sometimes the ways that we don't even, ha- we don't just have like the American perspective that's driven, like you said, a lot by media or movies or, you know, cliches and stereotypes. You have all of that. Um, and, and of course, you know, and of course the, that, you know, likes to highlight the most negative aspects. Um, but, but then on top of that, when we are in our churches, um, and in that specific context, um, the, the theological framework for talking about the Middle East in general or Muslims in general, those kind of broad, uh, brushes that are used. Um, I remember that's here in Michigan, um, I was visiting a friend of mine who had just gone on to staff at, at a church. It's a very large church. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the Sunday that he was being, it was his first Sunday, to be with, there and supportive of him. And, and uh, we're really glad to be there with them, uh, he, he and his wife. And um, sending a, a team of people into... But the, the pastor of the church only described as the Arabian Peninsula. Um, he wouldn't say anything specific about where they were going, but he, he characterized that as the place where terrorists come from. And he In front of the congregation? Yes, and he said it this way to tantalize them about the, about the urgency and the, the, um, the, the level of danger and to which they were, you know, advancing, right? Um, I was, I was, I was so angry. I was, <laughs> I was very angry. That's good reason. Yeah. And I, I just, I, you know, that kind of thing right there. And I, I wrote, I wrote him a letter because I couldn't get to him otherwise. Uh, it's pretty insulated. And so I wrote a letter and, and I just said, you know, you had this opportunity for people who you have this multi-million dollar building full of people who will probably never leave the the state of Michigan, let alone the country, mm-hmm. and let alone go to the Middle East. And you had the opportunity to characterize an entire region, an entire group of people, and you chose <laughs> you chose the place where terrorists come from, you know? And so I talked about yeah. the little bit of experience that I had, which is just the visit to Jordan with you guys. But I tried to characterize the smells and the sights and the people and the beauty that I saw and the stories that I witnessed. And I just thought, you know, really, did you, did you help your congregation to be open to grace? Did you, season your, did you season your speech with grace? Absolutely not, right? So, right. but it's in, this, it's in these contexts that, you know, that all of that plays out. And I just, I just wonder... If there's ways to talk theologically, if there's ways to talk in our Christian contexts about about Muslims, about Islam, about the Middle East, that are more faithful and uh, wiser, and um, what your guys' thoughts on that are? You know, the thing is, is we have such a lack of knowledge, right? I mean, we have a lack of knowledge about history. We have a lack of knowledge about other people's religions, and so it becomes really easy for someone like that pastor to stand in front of a group of people. And they're either giving their passive or active uh, you know, uh, agreement with what he said, 
or it just goes past them. But it, mm-hmm. I think that even if it's going past them, like you were saying earlier, along with media and other things, uh, we have a view that is shaped particularly about the Middle East that is fearful, angry, hateful, all of those things. Uh, as far as like theologically shaping it, man, I, I'll be honest, like I've tried, mm-hmm. you know, you, you engage in these conversations and you try to present scripture, you try to present history, you try to show people that maybe your view is not really in line with either one of those things, you know. Uh, and the hard part is it seems like someone who's entrenched in that fear or that anger, those kinds of conversations too often just further entrench them in their positions. Uh, mm. There's something going on in our society that is very divisive that way. Uh, which I think like this trip to Jordan and like Kendall's friendships, and I have friendships too that we've invited people into, the best thing that I've seen is uh, inviting people to the, into those relationships and taking people on those trips. You know, uh, I had a pastor and Kendall had a pastor, has a pastor that... Uh, for a long time, had a particular view of the Israel-Palestine issue. And the trips that they would take were always these tour groups that were really aligned, heavily pro-Israel, a, a real diminishment of the Palestinian side of the story. Uh, and he went on a trip with another friend of ours who for a long time had connected with Palestinian Christians. And finally, this pastor friend of ours he experienced some things along with Palestinian Christians that were unplanned, like where they were being treated poorly. <laughs> and it shifted his whole, one trip shifted his whole view in the way that he saw the issue, the way that he addressed it with his congregation. Uh, and that's the power of these trips, I think. That's the power of engaging in a context. And, you know, even if someone can't go on a trip to connect with uh, local Muslims or people from other cultures and whatever they are, um, to become knowledgeable instead of just talking out of, uh, really out of ignorance. Like I would, I would wonder about this pastor who made that statement about the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many Muslims does he know? How many Saudis does he know? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they in passing or are they real relationships? And if his answer is, I don't really know any of these people this way, then he probably should just shut up. <laughs> I mean, that maybe sounds really strong, but I feel really strongly about it. We need to speak out of knowledge, uh, especially if we have the responsibility of teaching people. So, out of knowledge or relationship? Out of, well, I would say that uh, the best knowledge comes out of those relationships, not, not out of some kind of book knowledge that you're picking up somewhere, but a, a real engagement. Uh, yeah, that's a good clarification. Relational knowledge. Mm-hmm. One of the things, you know, um, I had an experience where someone wrote an email to me that was very, very upsetting and about how all Muslims um, should be killed and Islam should be eliminated. And it was very strong, very heartful, and they sent it to me and asked me what I thought. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I was so upset. So I finally wrote a response and, you know, told them that I had a personal relationship with Muslims and that what they spoke of I could not relate to whatsoever. And that, that every time that they talked about Muslim, uh, Christians killing Muslims, it was like I put Kindle killing Murtada, mm-hmm. you know. And I said that doesn't even, there's no way, you know. Or uh, and So 
I had to go to Jimmy. <laughs> I said, Jimmy, I need help with this email. She didn't need any help. I did because so he had the historical and the you know, historical um, references that you know we needed to talk about Christianity and Muslims in the past, and um, so one thing led to another. And the very people, a couple of people, the person that wrote it, and a couple of people that um, actually were on the that list met Martada, and. Of course, Martada didn't have a clue that any of this occurred. Well, actually, he did. I did tell him at one point. But he didn't know who it was, of course. And um, when they, they met, the, met him, and then afterwards, they were like, oh, my goodness, he's just a young man. He's just a kid. He's so nice. He's so, you know, and I was like, yes. But if you would just open up and let, you know, natural friendships develop, you'll realize there's nothing to fear. Um, well, and I would say even if there is something to fear, like this is the thing, we get caught up on the fear part. You know, this is not safe. Like we want to keep people away from us because we think that they're not safe. Uh, right. I just don't know what that has to do with Christianity. <laughs> like, you know, safety, I mean, we follow a guy who was crucified, who said, if you're going to follow me, you better take up your cross, like prepare to be crucified. Uh, when Paul gets called, Ananias says to Paul, Jesus says to Ananias to tell Paul, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Uh, Paul writes to the Philippians, like this theme of suffering happens for Paul from the very get-go. And He writes to the Philippians, he says, you know, you were blessed not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer uh, for his name or in his name. And, and then Paul says, I want to know the power of Christ and the power of his resurrection, which we get caught up in wanting to know power a lot. <laughs> yeah. The next line, Paul says, and to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And so this the whole thing about safety, uh, you know, I'm worried about the safety of my children, obviously. Like, I, I'm responsible for the safety of my children. But, you know, if I was a Christian living in many places of the world today, but certainly in the first and second centuries A.D., uh, even safety for family was put on the line for following Jesus. It, you know, like... So we've overblown this safety element. The big word that we should grab a hold of in the, in the theological tradition you know, of Christianity is love. Like mm. Love overshadows all of that. So you may be my enemy. You may be a true threat to me. Mm. But you can't keep me from loving you and loving you fully. And in, in most of these situations, we're not even talking about enemies. Like These two young men are, not, are way far from enemies to Kindle. Uh, she's just loving them. Mm. Uh, but let's say that the whole Saudi Arabian Peninsula was a threat. Uh, let's say that it was full of terrorists, which I wholeheartedly want to affirm that I do not believe. Uh, so what? <laughs> you know, like, shouldn't that mean that that's where we're going? I don't know. Like, I, I'm not. I'm trying to figure out what this version of Christianity that people follow is <laughs> out there. <laughs> you, need, so you can say that again, man. That is that is so true. Yes. So let's just say. Let's just say there's there's tons of reasons to be afraid. What does that have, what does that have to do with Christianity? <laughs> right. I mean, it's like if you're a, like mountain mountain climbers have more faith than most Christians, right? I mean, it's not like I'm not going to go be a mountain climber because it's dangerous. I mean, that's the dumbest thing ever. Yes, you yes. can't be a mountain climber and be worried about that. You know? Yeah, you take obviously you take precautions. You're not just being an idiot, but you know, 
mountain climbers that go and they risk their lives, and we saw that me and my wife saw this story last week of some mountain climbers who died. And to us, that just seems silly. Amy and I were talking, my wife and I, like, why would somebody have kids at home? Why would they do that? Well, because they're mountain climbers. And I think for Christians, there may be a question in the world, but why would they do that? Mm. Well, the answer is, is because we're followers of Jesus. You know, it has its own logic. It's centered in love. So what might look idiotic to the world um, looks like faithfulness to Jesus, you know. And um, I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I, I can believe it. I can't believe that. I'm still stuck on the fact that pastor stood in front of that congregation and said that. And it happens all the time. It does. Yeah. I think that I experienced that too, like walking out of a kind of naivete about what the church is, but like that kind of what you might call naive is exactly what it means to like what Jimmy said is kind of a faithfulness to Christ and the, um, and the way to move forward in our stories and in the, in the story of Christians relating to Muslims might be to just move headlong into what feels naive yeah. You know, even though I could very, say very few words, just trying mm-hmm. to speak mm-hmm. and trying to communicate, they open up mm-hmm. and they are appreciative of you, you know, trying to um, communicate with them. And so there wasn't any fear. I guess it's because, you know, just go to them with a friendly face and. <laughs> Make a I, fool of yourself sometimes when you can't say the right Arabic words. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. And, and they're just, I mean, they, we're using the word they. We're all just people. Mm. I think that's the thing that's eye-opening. When you get past these labels, you know, like you want to acknowledge and you want to honor the way that people self-designate. You want to honor that someone's from Saudi Arabia. You want to honor that they're a Muslim. You want to honor those types of things. But you get past all of that. We are just people, and we have families, and we have problems. And uh, Kendall does have a special gift where she can cut. For some reason, she can cut past a lot of the things that a lot of us have to, the, the time that we have to spend building the kind of trust to get to some of those deeper personal human things um, in, in other people's lives and sharing her own. But I think that you know, once we get past these labels, then it's just a matter of sitting around talking to each other about who we are and learning about each other. And when that happens, it is easy for the fear to go away. When, mm. you know, just like us sitting here talking as friends, like when you feel like you have a commonality with somebody, uh, it's easy to let your guard down. You, know, you don't have to be guarded. Yeah. And it, it's, a, it's a natural thing. I do think, you know, the hard part is, is that first part for everybody. Uh, you know, it's like the junior high guy who wants to ask the girl out, but he never can bring himself to talk to her because he's just intimidated. So even somebody who has a desire to connect with other cultures, uh, especially in your own country, it's really hard to do because we have these bubbles and those worlds don't seem to, they cross, but they don't really connect very often. And it, it takes a real uh, intentionality to connect with someone from another culture on the part of someone who wants to do that. And obviously if someone doesn't want to do that, I mean, they can be kind of surprised like Kendall was, but it was kind of just out of her own heart to care for somebody. And, and I think the Holy Spirit moment, God and the whole thing. So 
um, you know, if someone's listening, they're like, man, I just don't know anybody from another culture, mm. or I want deeper friendships with people from other cultures. The hard part is, is it's just not going to happen accidentally most of the time. You're going to have to get up and do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to have to risk feeling awkward to say hi to someone that you don't know. You're going to have to risk speaking up for someone in a situation where they need someone to, and when I say speaking up, like maybe they're checking out somewhere and they don't speak good enough English and they just need somebody to help explain some things. Um, and if you start opening your eyes to that, you can see issues that take place all over the place. My daughter, when she was turning 16, there was a, a lady there that was from Myanmar trying to get her driver's license. She didn't speak very good English. And the, the driver instructor just jumped all over her. I think that kind of stuff happens all the time. Uh, and a lot of times we're, you know, kind of going along our lives and we don't see that. Um, and it's hard. Like, it was in that moment, I'll be honest, I didn't speak up for this person because my daughter was trying to get her driver's license. And it's like, is this really my issue? Is this the time to speak up? Looking back on it, I wish that I had stepped in and said, hey, man, you can't, you know, treat her right. Let me help you. You know, let me help her. Um, but it just takes, a, I think it takes a conscious decision and a conscious effort. But my guess is, is in most cities, this may be hard in more rural environments, mm. but in most cities there are ministries that are working with people of other cultures. Uh, there are social organizations and nonprofits working with ministries of other cultures that view people as people and not as uh, projects or objects uh, that people could ask around and find out about. Two, th- two things. One of them is when I helped Murtada and Hussein um, learning English to pass the English test. And I did the practice test with them. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it is so hard. <laughs> but I, I, the building with friendships with them and learning how and knowing how hard they tried to learn English. Mm. And Murtada even said once, whenever um, you know, I was with a group of his friends and they were talking in, in Arabic, and he was like, Don't talk in Arabic. Kendall won't make fun of you. She won't laugh at you. She'll let you practice. And I said, why did you have to say that? And he said, because Americans make fun of them. And though they won't speak, they, try, they, they won't speak. And I said, that's not the way it should be. But that really uh, opened my eyes to, I can be very, I can remember being very impatient when I got someone on the phone that didn't speak very good English. Or I was checking out somewhere and the person behind the counter didn't speak very good English. I it was just like, I mean, it's embarrassing to say, but I was like, come on, learn English. But now, I know how hard those boys t- tried to um, learn English, to be able to get into college, mm-hmm. and I've seen the progress that they've made. Um, you know, Murtada just graduated with his nursing degree and is a you know, neo- neonatal respiratory therapist, and Hussein is, you know, double degree accounting and computers. I mean, my goodness, I could not do that. <laughs> I went to Saudi Arabia. And tried to do all that. Right. She certainly couldn't do it if she didn't have somebody who was helping. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just hard to do. But Mm -hmm. I just has made me more, you know, aware of how we treat people. Uh, And so that has been Mm -hmm. huge. But one of the questions that um, I feel like I'm talking too much. No, no, no. I have to say, one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, or or statements that I hear a lot is that, Kendall, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do what you do. I'm like, yeah, you can. Mm. I said, I know that, you know, the lady that does my nails, she's from Vietnam. I know her husband's name, her kids' names, her mom. I know how she got to America. I sit there and I ask her questions as we, as we talk. And I've, now, now I've known her for eight years. 
I know the lady at the dry cleaners. She's Vietnamese also. She married her husband from Vietnam. He brought her over to the United States. And I said, you know, all you have to do is just ask a few questions. And I said, they don't think that you're being nosy. It's just you're genuine, if you're you know, genuinely caring. Um, and I usually say, you know, do you mind me asking, you know, how you came to America? How long have you been here? How'd you learn English? And they are more than willing to, to start sharing. Um, and that's just, you know. And, the, how and I, I will say, I'm going to give a caveat to people who are listening. who are like, I don't know. I, there are some people that when you start asking them and making this connection, they may pull back. Uh, some people from other cultures, they may pull back from you because you have to remember that they're not sure of you either. Mm-hmm. And maybe their experience has been one of not acceptance. So when someone at first comes up and wants to know their story or wants to know their stuff, they may, they may pull back a little. Mm-hmm. But what I found is, is after they pull back, once they realize that you're really sincerely... Uh, engaging and honoring them, then they then they do want to kind of tell their stories, and they are all over. Like as Kendall's going through this, like I think about the guy that cut my hair, who's from Vietnam, who was a refugee in the seventies, who was on the who's one of the boat people, like uh, had been imprisoned by the communists. Incredible stories of people who come here, uh, and they're all over the place. They're working in our restaurants, they're working in our stores, they're, they're your doctors and nurses when you go to the hospital, and they all have these fantastic stories. Um, it's just pretty amazing. So as you can tell, as you can tell, even though that get, Jimmy gives me a lot of credit, he has the very same gift of being able to, to connect with people, um, whether they are from here or from you know the Middle East or any country. She so. does it a little better. I think it's the barrel <laughs> racing background. <laughs> Those rodeos, they teach a lot to people. It teaches you so many life skills hanging on to that barrel. Life skills, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Confidence. It's called, the, uh, it's called hanging on. <laughs> I, think, I think that's such an important distinction that you're making or important thing to note. It's like we're really just talking about, again, we're talking about just human beings and what's like, like typical human interactions it's like I don't know, like why you're asking these questions, right? You know, like we're all these right. we're all these middle school kids going to the lunch table, wondering who's going to sit with us. You know, <laughs> right. it's like, right. can I sit right. down here? I don't know. Am I going to be accepted? Well, and, and can I trust you? Yeah, that's a big question for me. Yeah, you know? yeah. essentially getting to the idea that relationship is relationships are critical to opening us up to otherness to other cultures other understandings of than the one that we currently have if i could play an advocate on that other side is like well what if i don't know what i'm talking about you know what if i'm going to make a fool of myself you know or <laughs> i do all the time <laughs> come to terms with that and everything is easy <laughs> yeah. right I, I'll be honest, like I struggled with that, and I probably still struggle with that uh, context. <laughs> You're like one of the smartest guys I know, and he's telling us this. <laughs> well, exactly. no, I mean, I think that's part of the problem, right? <laughs> like I, when you, you know this, like when you've been in a role, especially in a church, where you have been a teacher or a leader, and mm-hmm. I was a school teacher for nine or ten years, when you're in those roles, uh, whether you want it or not, there is this, uh, you know, I'd like to say that it's an outside percep- a perception of me from others that I'm somebody who's knowledgeable. But the truth is, is you also have a perception of yourself as someone as being knowledgeable. 
So being able to lay that aside and realize, man, I, here's, there, there's never been a trip to the Middle East. There's never been a, this is absolutely true. There's never been a conversation that I've had of any depth with someone from another culture, even if I thought that I was really knowledgeable of those things where I don't come away feeling like, wow, I don't really know much. Like, <laughs> there's way more that I don't know than I do know. Um, you know, I, I think we just have to, how great is it to be able to say, maybe this is what helped Kindle a lot, to be honest. Like, she knew she didn't know anything <laughs> about yeah, the Middle East. And she, she's not someone geared to fake that. Like, she's geared to admit, man, I don't, I don't know even the things that I should know sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that helped her to uh, not have to put on that facade and to put that down. A lot of times Americans, what I've seen is when we go into missions contexts, we study a little bit, we go in with the notion that we're going to help someone. And that already puts yourself in the position of being the expert, which is a terrible way of entering into a relationship <laughs> unless someone's approaching you that way, right? Right, like, right. If I go to a doctor and say, you're the expert, tell me what I need to do. That's one thing. But um, I don't need somebody who's my friend to come and give me health advice all the time, especially if I don't know them, a brand new friend. Like, uh, so, you know, our trips to the Middle East have been intentionally, we keep saying this mantra, like we go, we're going to go connect uh, and, and we're going to support those who are serving the Syrian refugees in Jordan. We're going to connect with people. We're not there to fix things. We're not there to walk away as the Americans who did some kind of special deed. We're there to learn, which if you have that mindset, you're already admitting that you don't know, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to learn something, Mm -hmm. uh, which means I'm uh, not knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. Uh, So set it aside, I would think. There was a, there were two really kind of profound times when I was in Mofrak with you. Um, I think one of them was with Sherry and then another one was with Kendall. And so one of the trips that, one of the visits that we went, we visited a family uh, in Mofrak that um, essentially we spent the time talking to them about their marriage, which was really, really interesting because all the other trips, it, it, it was hard to connect. But this one just went so deep and really quickly. It was obvious that um, the husband and the wife, and they had children, um, the mother and father, they were, they were estranged from each other in some way. Like the, the, there was some disconnect happening between them. And as we dug into it, I, as I was listening to their story, I tried to imagine myself and my wife and my kids right. being uh, forced to leave areas of violence and difficulty and find myself in a place of the kind of dire circumstances that they were in and, and struggling to hang on to family and marriage. Like you, you, you how difficult that that is as it is, you know, yeah. <laughs> with yeah. all the, yeah. with all the resources the in the thing. world, how difficult that is to, to maintain those relationships and to think of the kind of pressure that was on them financially and relationally. They they lost their friend base. They had lost their family members. They and people were everything. And uh, I remember that moment being really, really like, you know, mind blowing for me. And the second one was we we sat with um, and Kendall was I was with you on on this trip and we listened to a man who uh, 
who was talking about, I think he lived in Dara and, and, and Dara, he was telling him, he was telling us about how the fighting had started. And the first one. Yeah. There was a protest. There was protest. People who are listening. Yeah. The Syrian civil war started. uh, There was the ISIS thing that was in the Eastern part of, of Syria, but this actual civil war started in Dara, which is just across the border from Mafraq. Like that's where the first protest and everything took place. So, mm-hmm. the gentleman telling the story was probably a part of that. Yeah, yeah, he was telling us about how they were part of this protest. It had to do with economic circumstances in Syria, and I started just seeing like I can see this, I can understand this. You know, he said that there was like all the wealthy had all the money, and then all the poor had nothing, and you know, and so they start protesting this the circumstances in their country. And then uh, somebody opens fire. And what he, what he said was actually there were instigators from outside of Syria that had really kind of mm-hmm. triggered this. And then, you know, the, the forces, the police forces there um, began to open fire on the crowd. And after that, it was civil war. Um, anyway, so I just like getting even a small fragment from a very, from very personal, you know, like a, a personal source of like how how did this all happen? Like what what started this? And to see the to see the effects of that on his family. Um, what are what are some of the stories and experiences that you guys have had with visits in Mafrak and and elsewhere that you know really stand out to you? I mean, that's a hard one to know where to start because you know there are so many I, this. There's a story, it's not really my story, but it's one that stuck with me a lot from last year uh, that was shared with a member of our team uh, named Marcus Ayers. And he came back and we were kind of doing our daily debrief. And there was a family, and I think there were five or six in this family, a dad and a mom. I don't know if there were sons. I know there were daughters for sure. And... He was just telling his story of how he came across to to Jordan from Syria. And, you know, real quickly it went, like, basically there were groups of men that were roaming around and attacking families, killing Mm -hmm. husbands and fathers, raping wives and daughters. And they were just trying to, they would get rumors of where these groups of men were. They just kept trying to stay ahead of these groups of men. And the sense that I got as Marcus told the story was that they were just exhausted. I mean, you're just trying to stay ahead of it. And as a father trying to protect your family, how exhausting that would be. And Marcus said that this, this father, you know, as they talked in the house, that the children would come in and he would be joyful and, and just fully engaged with his family and with his kids. And then when the children would leave the room, he would start telling this story and he was utterly heartbroken. And I was thinking, yeah, that's the way it would be. You're trying yeah. to give hope to your children, and yet yeah. you're scared to death that it's not going to work out. And eventually, they paid uh, like a human trafficker to get them across the border on some kind of truck. And I think they prepaid the guy. Mm-hmm. And when they showed up at the truck, there were I don't know hundred people there, more than what you could normally fit in one of these trucks. And the father says to the guy that he paid or the men that he paid, you know, there's no room on this truck. You can't even sit down and there's no bathrooms. We're going to be on there for hours, maybe days. It's not safe for my children. It's not safe for my family. And the guy that he was talking to turned to another guy and just said, okay, you don't want to go kill them. Like says to this other guy, just kill the kill them. And of course the guy at this point, the father is like, no, 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 no. Take my family. Let's, you know, we will go. 
I just think, what? As a father, as a husband, I mean, that's a story that gets told, I'm certain, over and over and over. It's interesting that the guy I was talking about that was from Vietnam that cut my hair, the, the, the refugee who was one of the boat people of Vietnam, his story was almost identical to that when he was a refugee from Vietnam. Paid somebody, showed up, too many people on the boat. So you know that that happens over and over and over of people who are already on the edge, and there's probably people who don't make it, people that they do kill. Um, what kind of trauma is it to not be able to keep your family safe? Um, now, they made it, and that's the fortunate story, but he's still dealing with the trauma mm-hmm. uh, of all of that. And now they're in a country where they don't know. You know, They've opened the border between Syria and Jordan, but a lot of families, it's just not safe for them to go back. If you were on the wrong side of some issue or if you were on the wrong side of some tribal dispute or regional dispute, it's just not safe to go back. There was so much violence. Or you're related to someone. Or you're related to someone. They, and you come back and they might just kill you oh, and your whole family. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of stuck in this liminal, this limbo stage as a refugee where they're not home in Jordan. They can't go back home. And you've got all this trauma to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After what all Jimmy said, what was probably one of the most alarming things that the first trip was how despondent the men were. And we go into these, you know, their homes, and of course they don't have jobs, and they would be like, I mean, they they weren't engaged. Uh, they sometimes they didn't even look up when we when we arrived, and I just I, I kept thinking about that. You know, every day looked exactly the same. They mm-hmm. didn't have a way to provide for their family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there didn't, wasn't any hope. But then, the, but the wives, they were still having to cook meals and take care of children, and so they still had a purpose where the men didn't. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the most. Uh, I mean, it was just really alarming. And then just just to see how despondent they were. The second trip that I went back, it was amazing how many men were not there. They had now there were some that went to other countries to get jobs and were sending money back to their wives, but there were many, many families that the men were gone and they didn't even know where they are. They had just left because they couldn't support their families and they weren't they they knew that their husbands weren't coming back. Mm. And it was which, which sounds like, you know, I, I, we talked about earlier in the conversation people who were critical of Muslim culture in the Middle East, people in the Middle East without knowledge. Like, you know, I've heard people say things like, why don't those men stay and fight in their country? Well, you know, let, let this place go to war and fall into chaos and let's see how many people actually want to engage in that when you're trying to keep your family safe. Right. And then the other thing is, is just the shame in, in their culture. There's a sense that it's better for my family if I'm not around. As long as a man's around, he's expected to provide. But if you're a widow or an orphan, uh, there's a cultural responsibility to take care of those who are widows and orphans. And, and um, you know, in some sense, if they can't deal with the shame, they probably think it's going to be better for my family if I leave. You know, and honor is huge. Uh, and honor is a huge thing for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the first the first night that I on that first trip that you were with us, Sam, when we first got to Mafrak. John Holland and I went out on a trip, and it was our so it was our first home visit, uh, first day we got there, and we visited a lady who we've been able to go back and see last year, uh, named Adara, who is 
uh, like 100 years old. And, uh, you know, her sons are, are old men too. Um, <laughs> but she's lost so many people in this conflict, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And as she was, she's just a lady who was full of joy when we visited her. Um, and, you know, she was born before any of these countries were countries. That's the thing that hit me that first time. Like, all of these conflicts. Jimmy would know that. Uh, you know, we think, you know, we just think about the Middle East as this ancient place, and it, you know, but the truth is, is the nations that are there are modern nations. Yeah. And all of their lines were drawn really just about 100 years ago. Yeah. And she was born before all of that. Um, it, and I just think about the conflict that she's seen. And when she was born, there wasn't a border between Syria and Jordan. Those countries just didn't even exist. And that's, that was kind of a wild thing for me to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, that we have all these borders now that you know, make it hard for people to transition. But what people may not know when they hear about the Syria-Jordan issue is a lot of people have family right across the border. You know, they're relatives on both sides. because the line got drawn by two right. by a Frenchmen and an Englishman yep. right across their tribe. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, a guy named, uh, a British guy named Mark... Um, um, God, I'm going blank. Uh, Sykes, Mark Sykes, and the French guy's last name is Pico. And in 1916, they drew the lines of all the, all the, basically all the nations of the Middle East. And those were ratified by the League of Nations in 1920 or something. Uh, I mean, it's pretty crazy to think about two guys. They really took colored crayons. <laughs> I, it's not a joke. Like, you can look up the Sykes Pico agreement, you can look yeah. up, they have a map. And they just marked off, this part's going to be France. This part's going to belong to France. This part's going to belong to Britain. We're going to give some parts, you know, to Russia. Uh, And the Saudi Arabians, because they've helped us in our fight against Germany, get the Arabian Peninsula. to think about all of the all of the history that's kind of framed all that um, for them. And I, I guess, like, the last one... You know, when it comes to our American mindsets about the Middle East, you know, and you touched on this already, Jimmy, um, you talked about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And, and so often in the, in the context, you know, that, that, I, that I've been in, um, you know, you just have, you, you described a kind of a community that was just, you hear, that, you hear the word Israel and you just have a, my disposition toward that is yes, you know. <laughs> But how do we help to inform or to talk about Israel in ways that help Christians to disassociate with that very knee-jerk reaction to anything Israel does is good? You know, of course, you have these, you have this text that says, you know, whoever's for Israel, you know, whoever's against Israel, right? Like There's, that happens two places in the Bible. One is actually is not about Israel; it's about Abraham, which right, who's also the father of Ishmael. That's important to remember. Uh, and then the other time it occurs is uh, the blessing of Balaam, right? Mm. The pagan prophet basically says, uh, whoever blesses Israel will be blessed and whoever curses Israel will be cursed. So how much do you want to lean into a, a pagan <laughs> prophet's thing? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you. <laughs> I love how succinct you can just, you can make it. It's really beautiful. <laughs> Balaam's not a hero in the Bible. That's all I'm going to say. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and I think like that's, that's really great. That's a really great point um, is like, 
when we don't think critically about the things that we say, we just have bumper stickers, you know? Right. We just have bumper sticker theology or bumper sticker thinking. And, um, hashtags. And, ha- and hashtags. Yeah. Right. Get with programs, Sam. <laughs> so how does a how does a Christian who's like you know let's I'm thinking of my audience and like how's a Christian who just says to themselves that kind of thinking like I think about like maybe you know my, some of my family members or friends who they're neat, like I said their their honest disposition is they want to be they want to be faithful to whatever that means um, how do they how do they engage how do we engage Thinking about Israel and Palestine in a in a more truthful. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is going to be audio, all, right? Question, so people miss the time. fact that Kendall and I are looking at each other like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so, man, how do I? Well, let me just start out by saying this: if we haven't lost everybody, <laughs> <other, I think laughs> comments. Um, you know, I started out when I became a Christian. It was 1986, and. Uh, I, I grew up in a uh, at a Methodist church. Once I became a Christian, that was uh, Pentecostal, um, and so I have kind of both of those elements in my life. And uh, you know, Israel—it was an assumption that if you mm-hmm. were a Christian, you were pro-Israel. And my senior year of high school, uh, the first Intifada, the first uprising of Palestinians against Israel, took place, and I just remember seeing that stuff on TV and on headlines. And, you know, I just, I, my, my first conversation with the Palestinian was in college as this intifada was going on. And he was trying to tell me about his experience, and I just would not believe him. I, I mm. could not accept what he was saying uh, because mm. of my own frame of reference. Uh, so I know, I guess I'm going to say, I know how difficult it is to shift in a perspective, and it took me a long time shift. And what's interesting is my the reason for my shift of kind of the way I see it was not because I took a trip to Israel. Uh, uh, it was not because of any friendships with Palestinians or any of that. It was actually out of reading the scripture. Uh, I really kind of threw myself in for a period of time studying the Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament. And they are constantly critiquing Israel. Uh, and then it, it causes you to realize, wow, you know, they did, and it seems like that's Moses did and Jesus did. Like, you know, there is this critique mm. of the people of God that has mm. to take place in Scripture. And so whoever you think the people of God is, there are prophetic words to be spoken that would say, hey, how are you treating people? How's your relationship with God? Mm. How are you treating foreigners and outsiders, mm. not just the people in your own society? And all of those are really linked together. And out of that kind of critique in the scriptures, I began to realize, man, if the more I was reading about the Israel-Palestinian issue, if Israel is mistreating people in their midst, then there needs to be a prophetic voice. And I actually didn't feel that, and I still don't feel that that's against mm. Israel in any way. I actually feel like that's it's pro-Israel for us to, point out to Israel ways that it's not living up to those standards that God would hold. Uh, And out of that kind of came a different shift for me just to realize that there's a lot of interesting things that the New Testament says about Israel. I'm not a replacement theologian. Like, I don't believe the church replaced Israel. 
But I do believe in the New Testament, Israel ex is expanded to include Gentiles. Like there's an expansion of what is defined as Israel, which is a hard thing to talk about and can be really offensive to some, mm -hmm. uh, some of my Jewish friends who, who right. hear that as a replacement theology. Um, so from that framework then for me is just an understanding that the modern nation state of Israel is really not biblical Israel. Biblical Israel is the people of God who are following God in faith, and um, that's much mm -hmm. broader than a nation state. Uh, now, there are issues about the land and who inherits the land and those things that are very difficult. But, uh, you know, in answer, that's a long answer to your question, how do you make that shift? I think, you know, if you start out reading like Ephesians, where Paul's talking about bringing down the dividing line between the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, and that those Gentiles are now made a part of the commonwealth of Israel, it, it can shift your view. And he talks about it as being a mystery. Like that wasn't something that ancient Israelites understood. That's something that was only revealed through Jesus, mm -hmm. this expansion mm -hmm. of Israel, post-Jesus, I would say. Um, you know, I, I don't know. That kind of allows us to shift these kind of knee-jerk nationalistic re reactions that... Uh, that we want to see things in a simple way because that just makes it easier. Mm. Whose side are you on? You know, um, you know this. This is going to be a weird, weird connection. <laughs> I'm not a sports guy, but my son likes to watch basketball. So we're watching, you know, the NBA uh, tournament, and uh, you know Steph Curry and his brother are playing against each other. And you think about his mom mm. is not on either one side, you know, because she he, she knows them mm. both and she cares about them both. Only in a simplistic world mm -hmm. could you pick one over the other, where you can't deal with that tension and that nuance to love both and want to, the best of both. And I think the freedom we have in Jesus and, and just love is that I can be for Israelis and I can be for Palestinians, which means I can struggle with seeing this tension between the two of them, and it means mm -hmm. that I can talk about justice mm -hmm. and what's right to both of them and to Americans who are supporting either position, it means that it's not simple. Like as soon as I start advocating for Palestinian issues, people think I'm anti-Israel, which right. is not the case at all. But that's only in a non-nuanced world can you not advocate for what's right for one, and people think that that means you're <laughs> advocating for right. something bad for another. You know, um, you know, and it and, and that works both ways. I'm my. I have a lot of friends now that are really engaged in the work of peace work, and they're, when you see someone being mistreated, it's easy to lean heavy into their position, people that you care about, as you should. And so we, I have friends that are working in Palestine with Palestinians, and for them, they're, it's, they have a lot of anger towards Israel. And my daughter and I went, were able to go on a trip and go to this place called Hebron, is where Abraham's tomb is, and um, and all you know the patriarchs, and it's just a very divided city. Some massacres have happened on both sides. Um, the latest being in the '90s, a American doctor came in and shot like a hundred people in the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron, killed like thirty people. Mm. A lot of violence takes place, and we were there, and I, my daughter had just turned sixteen, and we're looking at things, and. Um, we were able to stop it. She, my daughter had to use the bathroom, and so we stop at a friend's place, a house that's also a shop. And she goes back to use uh, the restroom. And 
the father of the house, the guy running the shop, had a black eye. And I was like, how did you get your black eye? He says, well, the Jewish settlers here, because in the West Bank, the Jewish settlers here beat me up. And the thing is, is we're literally right across the street. We're maybe 30 feet from an Israeli guard shack, checkpoint, um, which is a thing in of itself where you watch them strip people down who live in the place before they can go places mm. to check them out. But uh, I said, well, did the, did the guards do anything while they were beaten? No, they didn't do anything. Well, I mean, what are they going to do? You know, so these guards see that we're there visiting with this family and my daughter finishes and we kind of say our goodbyes and we walk past, back past by the guard shack, the Israeli guard shack. And, and they've seen us hanging out with these Palestinian Arabs, so they've kind of decided who we are. And they kind of are mockingly saying to us and our group, uh, you know, goodbye, arrivederci, ma'asalam. You know, they're like, kind of, they're saying it in really mocking terms, terms about three soldiers. And I just looked at the soldiers and I said, shalom, you know, the Hebrew for peace. And they, their faces suddenly changed. Like they went from mocking us to like smiling. They're like, oh, shalom, shalom. They reached out and shook my hands. I said, shalom. And we started to walk off. And the group that we were with, which included some Americans who live in Palestine and some Palestinians, my American friends who live there kind of looked at me kind of funny. And I saw it. And my daughter also saw it. We were walking behind them, and she kind of gets my attention. My daughter does and says, hey, they were mad at you for saying peace to those soldiers. And I just, you know, because I, I wanted to teach my daughter something, but I also wanted to say something to my friends. Like, I said, Haley, we're followers of Jesus, which means <laughs> we get to say peace to everybody. Like, I'm not against those soldiers. I just, I'm not any more against them than I am against the shop owner. Like, I'm for them all. I said, we stand against injustice. So if those soldiers are doing something unjust, we're going we're gonna to speak up and stand against that if, if anybody does. But we get to be the people who are for everybody, which is a hard place to be when people want you to pick sides. And I would just say to any listeners out there, I would just say, give yourself the freedom mm-hmm. that you don't have to pick sides, that you can, you can love both sides. And you can let them kind of guide the process of, how peace needs to happen between them. Uh, I, I do think people have asked me, like, you know, why be so concerned about the Israel-Palestine issue? And if you're an American mm-hmm. citizen, you're a part of the conflict, whether you want to be or not. Like, we, uh, over 10 years, are giving Israel $40 billion uh, to mm-hmm. their military alone. Um, we've cut, at this mm-hmm. point, all funding to Palestinians. But my tax dollars are engaged in this conflict. And so I want to be informed. I want to be engaged on the relational level, with people as friends, but on a political level, uh, I don't want to support wars that are right. harming right. people. You know. Uh, and I'll just toss this out. Yemen mm-hmm. is the same kind of situation. But, You know, I I, th- I think that the spirit of Christ is poured out on all flesh, right? But For it seems sure. like that there that there are people and there are places and times where it feels like that whatever it means to be like a difference between heaven and earth, you know, that there are people and places where that 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 differentiation becomes hard to tell. 
and I think that the two the two of you are like that for me. And I'm when I met um, when I met you both, um, I just I just feel the sense of that your your story and your your uh, I thought your spirit, you know, the the sense I have of the two of you is just that of the the nature of Christ. And I just wanted to tell you guys that. That when I um I want you to know the kind of energy that, you know, the kind of presence that you are in the world. And it's a it's a beautiful one. And so it was when I thought of talking about my trip to Mofrock, which the truth is I haven't really talked to anybody about it. I've tried and uh it's difficult. It's difficult. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when I got back, I was I was still pastoring um when I got back. And I was in a very, very, you know, um I wanna speak you know, well of the community that I was in, but it was it was very, very careful work that I had to do. You know, I'm talking about the outside the church was a prayer garden with m- military statues, you know, like people, soldiers right. carrying American flags. And this is a prayer garden, um, you know. Uh, so, you know, when I got back, I was very, very suspected, you know. <laughs> right. What were you doing and what are you talking about? You know, kind of a thing. Right. And um, so anyway, I know that it can be, it's whatever, you know, whatever kind of difficulty it is to talk about the Middle East and to talk about relationships with, with, with Muslims or, and, you know, even the way that you, Kendall, have experienced that at a very personal level. Um, I just want to tell you that the, the way that you are doing that is really, really beautiful. And it gives me hope. It gives me hope. Thank you. Yeah. So I hope with all the things that we said in this episode, that at least a couple of things will stand out. Number one, if there's any real reason, in fact, to fear our neighbors, the Christian story has no place for it. No place for fearful disengagement and especially dehumanization of those neighbors. Number two, with that in mind, we should be pressing into relational knowledge of our neighbors, knowledge that's not predicated on us having all the answers, but one where we seek real friendships and mutuality and an honoring of our differences as we learn them and an unlearning of the things we used to know about our neighbors in that process. Last thought, it seems to me that our desire for safety demands that we seek easier and more simplistic solutions to the challenges that we face and are actually available to us. Fear drives us to follow anyone who screams, fire, this way to safety. But we have to be more prayerful than this. We must, for the sake of our neighbors and our future together, slow down and contemplate better responses to fear, responses that are truly love and loving. And so there's this prayer that I've prayed pretty regularly, much of the church has, and I'd like to lead you in it. If you want to and care to join me, it goes something like this. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole hearts. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For this, we are truly sorry. 
and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your name.